Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Baum. Just a reminder, these podcasts are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we doing this week, Andrew? You've titled this episode Fire, Frost, and Light, and I didn't want you to get away without uh, that being announced publicly. I think we're talking about corneal burns. <laughs> that, was, that was an internal <laughs> note. <laughs> but Your yeah, best was, Game of Thrones. We were going to... No, that's just the, the things that we're freaking talking about. <laughs> there are... Uh, so we're going to do a two-part series on corneal burns. The first part will basically be non... Um, Non-chemical burns, yeah. And then the second part will be chemical burns. But uh, yeah, it was just a little too much to fit into one episode. So here we are. So let's talk about non-chemical burns. And uh, Andrew outlined very colorfully what the three types that we'll talk about generally, which is thermal burns, freezing type burns, and then the various ones that can come from light, which are UV radiation, infrared, and ionizing radiation. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so let's thermal burns. Let's start there. Yeah. So, you know, you don't actually often see thermal burns, thankfully, or at least none that really present terribly, because everything else protects the eye before it usually gets there. Somebody's face might be, unfortunately, mostly burned off or something, but their cornea will usually be the last to be affected, thankfully. That's from, you know, the physical barriers of skin and stuff, but not just their static presence. The eye and the orbit have all these ways of trying to protect it like bell's phenomenon just keeping it out of the way rapid blinking and even the tear film itself acts as a coolant so there are those situations where it still does get thermally burned ben what are some other factors that play into whether you get severe damage or not from something like that and i guess time is probably one of them yeah yeah exactly so it in general, if there's like a thermal injury, like an explosion near someone, because of these protective factors, a cornea won't be significantly injured. So it requires something to apply heat to the eye for some sustained period of time. Like instantaneous heat will get you know rolled off by the by the cooling effect of the tear film. So classic examples of someone getting a thermal injury are things like cigarette burns or curling irons that accidentally kind of fall and maintain contact with the eye for some you know, period of time, or it could be hot liquids that are splashed into the eye and can retain heat within, on the eye. So things like oil or grease. Um, so it's it's contact time and the heat retention of that material. So something that can retain heat for longer may be more dangerous. So molten glass, which is an insulator, may be somewhat more dangerous than um, a molten metal. To illustrate that and illustrate the cooling effects of the protective cooling effect of the tear film. There is a case report of someone that had a low uh, melting point temperature metal strike their eye. And even though it stayed on the eye, there was essentially no injury to the corneal epithelium or anything on the cornea. And it stayed on long enough that actually formed like a cast of their cornea when it was removed from their eye. So, you know, that that shows just how many protective effects there are and that you need a pretty decent amount of heat sustained on the eye for uh, thermal injury to happen. But if it does happen, Andrew, what does that look like? Yeah, manifestations like a clinical presentation of a thermal burn can cause the usual stuff like opacification of different structures, in particular the epithelium. If that sloughs off, though, then you might just see clear stroma. 
the biomechanics of the cornea can be affected by these types of injuries too. That's actually sometimes taken advantage of intentionally. So the cornea can be flattened by all of this heating and a procedure called conductive keratoplasty intentionally tries to achieve this by sort of heating areas of the cornea that it actually flattens the cornea further. You can imagine that that's particularly helpful for very like hyperopic people maybe or something. Or presbyopes, yeah. Those yeah. are the more common indications for it. <laughs> right. Don't don't just burn a hyperope just because they're hyperope. However, of course, if it uh, if you do this too much and you can really necrose the tissue instead and then maybe th- overly thin it and leave the cornea ectatic too. Right. Yeah, so a tear film is kind of the second barrier to thermal injury to the eye. The epithelium itself can be a barrier to protecting the stroma. You know, that's why people can have dense uh, epithelial pacification, but have a totally healthy and normal stroma underneath it from a thermal injury. But, you know, if you leave a high enough temperature onto the stroma for a long enough period of time, then it can cause necrosis and thin out the, uh, the stroma, though it usually isn't opacified. It usually is still clear, but just thinned out. And continuing along those lines, the treatment is basically just treat it like an epithelial defect. Now, because the thermal effect specifically does shrink those collagen fibers, then um, it can lead to corneal flattening. It will lead to corneal flattening, which can lead to astigmatism or refractive changes, depending on what part of the cornea it, it strikes. And that can take weeks to months to resolve. So don't play with their refraction yet. Wait for the cornea to really resolve from that thermal injury before re-prescribing them a new refraction. I was going to say, oh, and, you know, the corneal flattening from a thermal burn injury doesn't always resolve either. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes it can. So, okay. Yeah. Cool. And to clarify, even though the cornea may be flattened and because the collagen fibers are shrinking in conductive keratoplasty, you usually are doing it to induce some degree of myopia, whether it's for presbyopia or otherwise, And that works because you are flattening in the peripheral cornea when you're doing conductive keratoplasty. And that shrinkage ends up making the um, center of the cornea steeper, resulting in that myopia. Okay. I think that's that for thermal injuries. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is freezing type injuries, which is very, very, very rare. There's a small section in BCSC about it. Basically... The, the scenario that it might happen is if you have very prolonged cold exposure. So the examples might be things like mountain climbing or skiing. And it's it's possible for the cornea to, to become cold enough to suffer, suffer injury from that. Remember, the cornea doesn't have an active vascular supply to warm it. That's why the iris is warmer than the cornea. And so the cornea really gets a lot of its heating from the eyelids. So it appears that in general for this to happen, you need prolonged cold exposure. And it seems like it's often potentiated by someone who has a problem with corneal sensation. So some kind of fifth nerve defect, maybe diabetes or, you know, a fifth nerve palsy, Raynaud's syndrome, whatever it may be. What the cold does eventually is it doesn't seem to do much to the epithelium like in thermal burns, but it actually can act on the endothelium, affecting the sodium-potassium ATPase pump that is the function of the endothelium to dehydrate the cornea so that it's clear. So essentially it can get transient corneal edema. Once the endothelial cells warm up, then they should 
you know, then they should work again and they should be able to have a clear cornea again. So it's not very clinically significant. It's very rare for it to happen. And there's really not much to do about it besides, you know, kind of warm their, warm their, uh, you know, warm them up or just have them close their eyes where that nice warmth of the blood vessels in the lids can reinvigorate the corneal endothelium. Maybe we'll see more of it, Ben, now that we live in colder places. <laughs> maybe. Probably maybe. not. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious why they're in the retina clinic at that point, but who knows? Who knows? Okay. What else can cause kind of a burn-type injury, Andrew, besides chemicals? Yeah, so we talked, about. we talked about hot stuff. We got, talked about cold stuff. We're not going to talk about chemicals just yet. So let, what's left is things on the, I guess, electromagnetic spectrum on, of light, right? So in order, I think there's UV radiation we'll talk about first, but there's also infrared injury that could happen. And then just ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. To start with the ultraviolet radiation, you know, we've talked about the heat affects the epithelium, the cold affects the endothelium. Ultraviolet light usually affects the epithelium back to the front of the surface of the eye. You can get this, you know, sort of many different ways. Uh, the usual stuff are things like tanning beds, arc welders, people in the snow, not because it's cold, but because the snow kind of easily reflects all of the sun's ultraviolet rays right into your eyes. I think you have a fun, interesting, weird case recently, right? Yeah, there was a case I saw right before finishing residency was someone had set up a UV lamp. I think it was in their restaurant or their place of work that tried to prevent COVID-19. It was like they, they were trying to use it as a disinfectant. And so they, they set it up and they worked next to it all day. And it was, I think it was in the, a kitchen or, or, or something like that. And then the next day they had a lot of pain in their eyes and they had diffuse punctate epithelial erosions as a result. Wow. So yeah, that prolonged kind of UV exposure uh, seemed to give them kind of this UV radiation type of burn to the cornea. And I know there's a lot of people trying to use ultraviolet stuff these days, like sterilize their mail maybe, but I don't mm-hmm. think that's really going to lead to much more of this because you really have to have like sustained uh right exposure to this like this guy just working next to it all day right right when it's something that's not super bright like arc welding might be a little bit different because it's, it's super just bright. so intense yeah. yeah it's very uh, much more intense you don't but, need uh, much yeah, of it. most of these most of these require some time to occur yeah um also notably it's as far as time i feel like there's a bit of a delay too right like the arc welder will feel just fine but later that evening they'll start having symptoms even like hours after they put the welder down right yeah and the the reason for that it's suggested from rabbit studies is how uv light causes a corneal epithelial injury is by affecting the cellular components within the epithelial cells themselves it's not like a dna replication thing but it's the um you know, the, the cell cytoskeletal elements. Yeah, cytoskeletal elements. Yep, yep, yep. And that can lead to epithelial edema. But that takes some time for um, to occur. So classically, the delay in symptom onset is about 8 to 12 hours after the UV light exposure. Mm-hmm. That, so that's why. Uh, you've got some of these, like, parameters, too, for the different types of ultraviolet light. 
You want to yeah, go into that? Yeah, we maybe should do an episode on UV light at some point with like sunglasses and stuff. But the basics to know here are mm. there's three kind of classifications of UV light, and they're all based on how their their wavelength. So remember, light has more has more energy the shorter of a wavelength it is. Uh, so UVA has the longest wavelength from 400 to 320. You don't have to memorize that, but just as a general idea, it's in kind of the uh, the mid 300s. UVB is 290 to 320, so it's around 300, the low or low 300s. And then UVC is 200 to 290, so UVC is in the 200s. So as you get further along from A to B to C, they in theory have more. Um, they can induce more um, more damage because their uh, photons have more energy. So the main types of radiation people encounter on a day-to-day basis are UVA and UVB. UVB is generally absorbed by the cornea and ascorbic acid, which we reviewed in a recent episode, is present in the aqueous humor. And so that prevents the UVB from really getting to the lens, but UVA then can get to the lens because it is not absorbed by the you know various amino acids and such in the cornea as well. So UVA can damage lens, which probably leads um, in some part to cataract formation, but and UVB is absorbed by the cornea ascorbic acid. UVC is the worst for both because it gets that high energy stuff. So it's the most dangerous type for cornea for the cornea. This probably won't come up clinically too much unless you know you know that someone's using an industrial application of UV light and you know what wavelength was used. But in terms of general guidelines, um, that's uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll know the kind of subtypes of UV exposure. Um, and how do what do patients look like when they have been exposed to UV radiation? You know, uh, PEEs everywhere, yeah. punctate epithelial erosions, or just even worse than that, just frank epithelial defects. Um, the arc welders that I've seen in the ER, just, you know, super injected, bothered red eyes. You can even have like some amount of eyelid edema from this too. I feel like just mm-hmm. yeah, people, people's eyes being so uncomfortable over re- reacting to things. We will touch briefly on infrared light. You know, infrared light is basically thermal lights. It's very rare for that to cause injury. It could occur when you're doing things like looking at solar eclipses or from like if someone is exposed to a very intense explosion but even then it requires very high amounts of infrared light to really cause injury so this is not like a very significant concern but it's theoretically possible for that to happen and then for ionizing radiation i feel like we can just refer you to the other episode we did right on radiation damage yeah we had a whole episode on ocular radiation um and where, where we talked about a lot of the ways that that can affect the eye um just to kind of loop things into this episode uh, remember that it can cause um not only you know damage to the cornea but specifically to the uh, limbal stem cells because this is more likely to damage dna so it can damage things that have more replication like epithelium and limbal um, epithelial stem cells, which can lead to poor wound healing if one were to get a wound in the setting of ionizing radiation. It can also, for some reason, damage the endothelium of, of the vasculature, so that can lead to ischemic necrosis as well of the limbus, of the sclera, etc. So it can cause these things, but you're right. We did an episode all about ocular radiation, so you can check that out if you want to learn more. And that's what we have for this week. Yeah. Uh, So ends fire, frost, light, and fury. Yeah, correct. (laughs) Um, 
check us check out next week's episode to learn about kind of the more common type of corneal burn that you'll see in the emergency room, which is chemical burns. We definitely need to know about that. So we'll see you next week with that topic. Bye. Bye.